Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Startups in the Studio. Today's interview is with the founder and CEO of XOI, Aaron Salo. Aaron grew up in an entrepreneurial background and took some early lessons from his father into his efforts as a founder of his own technology company. Aaron left a good-paying job at the age of 30 to start XOI. He was able to grow to profitability and eventually raise $17 million in total while remaining based in Nashville, Tennessee. He focused on each raise and at each stage on getting to profitability or break-even to give himself optionality on how he raised his money. He was in a much better position to negotiate with investors and have options in the direction he chose to go with the company. He provides great nuggets of wisdom throughout this entire interview, including how to get early tech developed and into the market, when to start approaching institutional investors, maintaining relationships with potential future investors, finding investors who fit with your vision for the company, and carving out room for strategic investors who can help beyond the capital. So stay tuned for that and more with Aaron Salo of XOI. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startups in the Studio podcast. I'm sitting in our high-tech studio in Nashville, Tennessee, with Aaron Salo, the founder and CEO of XOI. Uh, Aaron is uh, going to talk to us a little bit today about his background and uh, how he raised, um, how much money have you raised in total for XOI now? 17.8, I think the number is. $17.8 million yeah. here based in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we're really excited to have you in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. I appreciate it. Aaron, to get started, why don't we uh, tell the, the uh, listening audience a little bit about your background? Have you always had the entrepreneurial bug, or is it something that kind of came later uh, in your career? Yeah, I think it probably started with you know growing up in a, in a family that was entrepreneurial. My dad was a manufacturer. He started his first manufacturing company when he was 24. So uh, I think, you know, it was it was in his blood and certainly seeing what it takes to, to build a business, watching him sacrifice a lot and work extremely hard, uh, I think kind of built that uh, the sickness. I joke sometimes the entrepreneurial sickness to want to go build something from nothing because it's uh, it's quite a journey. But I'd say that's that's probably the impetus for my desire to start a company. Did you get involved at all when your dad was starting the company? Were you around the office or, or helping him at, at points? Yeah, I think uh, no question. I mean, I started running machines in, in his factory when I was 15. Um, my spring breaks and Christmas breaks and, and summer breaks and things like that were working in the in the machine shop. You know, uh, that's how you earn money. I remember him telling me, you know, if you can run these machines as fast as these guys, I'll pay you seven bucks an hour like I pay them. And that was that was big money, you know. And I said, hey, I can do it. So it was a challenge. I think I was competitive by nature. I always played sports. So it was, uh, it was a great opportunity to earn money and, and prove that uh, I could work as hard as the, the adults. So, yeah, definitely involved in that. And certainly saw him, too, um, really, really work unbelievably hard. I think he's still the hardest worker I've ever seen. And and to the point of probably craziness, right? I remember days, you know, as a kid where he would, he'd literally be gone at the the shop, we called it, uh, for three days straight and, and come back looking like he was up working for three days. I mean, just unbelievable type of um, human will to get things done. And uh, and so seeing that, I think, certainly inspired me to, to understand when you start a business, what that really means. I think a lot of people get startup lust they go, hey, I'm going to start this business. I, I watch Silicon Valley on HBO. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all awesome, right? You just walk in and people give you money and 
you play ping pong and foosball and make it happen. And the reality is it's, uh, it's, it's the hardest thing you will ever do. Yeah. So do you feel like, uh, you know, before starting XOI, you kind of had a sense of what you were getting into yeah. and you knew going into it, it was going to be hard work. And, you know, every entrepreneur knows it's hard work, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they say, well, I'm a hard worker. I can figure it out. Right. But they don't realize actually how hard it really is. So yeah. Do you think that helped you or do you think that maybe it, it scared you a little bit before you got started? Yeah, I think the thing that I underestimated um, was not the work part. It was all of the, the I think, two things, the peaks and valleys uh, of a business. You have, you have amazing moments on Monday followed by excruciatingly painful moments on Tuesday. And and you have to be able to manage your emotional intelligence throughout that, uh, which is really difficult. I think you have to compartmentalize as well. It's something people don't talk about well, right? You can talk to a customer that is not going to move forward with your product and then jump on another call five minutes later with a new one and act like that didn't happen, right? And, And that's difficult not to be down. I think the other piece that I probably underestimated I've learned is that how important support is. Um, you know, when I went to start this business, I was leaving a job making really good money to know I was going to be starting something and making no money. I didn't think, I didn't know how long that was going to actually happen and ended up being several years. But um, to have my wife as supportive as she was and said, I know you have to do this. I support you. I believe in you. Um that's huge. Uh, I think it, it might be one of the biggest things, uh, really, that entrepreneurs need to consider before they start a company. Because if, you don't, if you're coming home every day and you have a spouse that's going, ah, well, you know, it's financially stressful. What are you doing? What's happening? You work 15 hours today. You know, why don't we ever hang out anymore? Why are you working on the weekends? That's draining, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been blessed to have an incredible wife that uh, has been with me through the roller coaster for six years at XOI and going, hey, you got this. And, and she's an amazing support. You have to have that. And I don't think enough people talk about that, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think that's crucial to success. Or just be single and understand you're not going to do anything, <laughs> right? But if you're married or have a relationship, they have to be in your corner. Yeah, yeah. I think we have that in common. My, my wife, obviously, very supportive. I was starting in crowd. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd pay myself my first salary after eight months. It took me two years before I took right. my first paycheck. Right. And, uh, yeah, having the support and somebody who says, you know, you know, as long as things are looking like they're moving the right direction, yeah. you know, fight through it and stick with it. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point on the ups and downs and just trying to know that, that you are going to have the ups and downs. And that was one of the things I learned early is just you got to stay even keel. Mm-hmm. It's important to celebrate the wins, sure. especially with your team. But you got to... You know, if you get too excited and too low, you go to the extremes, and that's not a good place for an entrepreneur to be. Very true. Where, when did you first start getting the idea of XOI? I think maybe you were about thirty years old mm-hmm. or so when you started it. Yeah. So, you know, you had been working, you had a great job, you decided to quit. How did the idea come about, and yeah. when did you decide I'm going to go take the take the leap and give this a shot? Yeah. So, so kind of the longer story is that there was a business that was kind of an R and D company out out of the manufacturing company I co-founded when I was also. 24 years old, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that company had done some work around smart glasses and building their own kind of prior to Google Glass and and that whole kind of consumer side of the smart glass industry. I was involved with that from the beginning and, and certainly came back around when it was looking like, you know, there's a lot of competitors coming to the space. And so I think the, the initial impetus was to look at the smart glass and go, this project was looking at a consumer-based focus 
And I really felt like an enterprise-based blue-collar focus. My background, my entire background has been manufacturing construction is really where it needed to go. And so it really kind of started to look at, hey, how do we take this smart glass piece and where's the real opportunity? And we initially did have a smart glass product that was combined with another um, uh, company called Pivothead um, that we provided. But, but ultimately, I think the, the, the inspiration was to say, we know there's a skilled trades gap. We know that this needs to be solved by kind of democratizing knowledge. So connecting, you know, 10,000 baby boomers retire a day. Younger people are not getting into the trades. How do we figure out the right market to go focus on? So I think the smart glass was kind of a, an inflection point, but ultimately none of our revenue ever came from really selling smart glasses. It was always a software business. And that seemed like the more flexible, malleable way to actually build a company. And so even though that was at the start for us, we ended up uh, really pivoting hard into not only software, but also the mechanical electrical plumbing industry. So uh, the, the spark was really my background. I think I, I tell people, I think my entire life from running machines at 15 or even before that and seeing my dad in, in manufacturing, my entire family, I thought my grandparents are farmers aunts and uncles all work with their hands. I feel like that that inspiration really came from that. But if you look at kind of the smart glass side, that idea of going, oh, if I had a camera and a pair of glasses and I could see what someone sees, what would that mean? And applying that to my experience uh, and then going, all right, well, a lot of industries could use this. What's the best one? And that led us to you know multiple pilots and multiple industries and really finding that that problem was most exacerbated in mechanical electrical plumbing. Tell us about the, the business. I mean, yeah. you're, you're still solving the same problem that you we are. set out to solve. It's a communication tool for enterprises to be able to see what their maybe technicians are seeing. Mm -hmm. It becomes a sales tool and many other things. So you started with the, the, the smart glasses mm -hmm. concept um, and you moved into software, but the problem is always the same. Why don't you tell uh, the audience here a little bit more about the company and sure. what you guys do to serve your clients? Yeah, so, so uh, our lighthouse has always been the same. And, and it's interesting along that path, we've learned about some really interesting gaps in, in the technology ecosystem. And so I mentioned that we're focused on mechanical electrical plumbing, both commercial and residential. The way I express that is we're sitting in this nice office right now and we're comfortable. Um, you know, we have to use the bathroom, it's down the hall. And we got electricity, electricity in here, right? Which is how we're having this conversation. Um, those things we kind of tend to take for granted if we're honest with ourselves sometimes. They, they require really smart men and women to keep moving. Um, you know, it's cold here in Nashville. It's actually not bad this morning, but it's wintertime, right? If this goes out and you're in here freezing, it, it becomes a high priority. So uh, that's the market we serve. And when you look at that market space, over the last 20 years, it's really matured in terms of the field service management offering in that space. So the men and women that come to this building to fix a problem for you, um, they have field service management software, likely. A huge percentage of them do. And that, that technology greets them in the morning, says, Phil has a problem at his office. We need to help him. Gives your information, your address, contact information, and they come to this job site. They put that technology on their dash figuratively or literally sometimes, and they come in and they do the thing they're paid to do. The interesting piece is that technology stops providing value as soon as they show up at your front door, and then it picks back up when they fix the problem and leave. And so you think about that gap in the technician's journey, that gap is only served from a technology perspective by Google, phone calls, text messages, I got to call my supervisor, I have a problem, maybe call Parts House. And so we saw that gap and go, oh, wow, so that's where the skilled trades problem is. The people that come into your you know, studio bank and come to your office to fix something, 
They don't have any support. They don't have good communication with you. You're probably not going to go on the roof with them. They don't have great communication with the office, right? Uh, because they're just calling, texting, things of that nature. And they ultimately don't have the information they need to consume to fix the job correctly. So that is where XOI fits. So I think it's important to understand where we fit in the technician's journey first, because I think it addresses very clearly where that problem is, which is the skilled trades gap. So once you kind of think about that gap in, in, in any technician's day, what we do there is based in three C's. So it's capture, coach, and collaborate. It's collecting information across automated workflows. So showing you what happened on your roof, showing the office why there's a sales opportunity, being able to show a parts house what needs to be ordered. Coach, which is a knowledge base, consuming manuals, wiring diagrams, training content, and then collaborate, which is our live video platform. So someone's on site with you and they're young tech and they don't know what to do, they can go back to a virtual service center where a 35-year vet sitting in front of a flat screen TV and they can walk this person step-by-step through the problem to the solution. So those, that kind of makes up what we do kind of at a high level and, and the gap in the technology ecosystem that we fill. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, and, and this, I think, would probably be the second interview we've had where we've seen a major pivot away from hardware yeah. and towards software. Uh, what, was, what was that like? And we'll, come, we'll kind of circle back to that to, to get that into the context of fundraising. At what point did you make the pivot? Was it after you raised early money and you had these investors saying, like, okay, it's time to make a pivot? And that was obviously a hard conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about the pivot away from hardware and towards software. Was it investor-driven or was it business model-driven? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, you know, certainly um, it makes sense on the surface to say, if we can deliver those three C's in a hands-free point of view way, that makes makes great sense and it's a good use case because we have people that are working with their hands, right? They're, they've got tools, they've got things. If I can put that in the person's view, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, and so I think initially for us, that was, we probably were a little too cute, right? We're like, oh, this is great. This is, this is the solution. And I think even though we understood blue-collar people, I think getting a sense of, I got to keep this thing charged, they're not autonomous. I mean, they don't have cell phone chips in them, so I've got to connect it to a hotspot to get it to work. I've got technicians who are carrying this around, like to carry their tools around. It gets thrown around, and we're talking about hardware that's a couple thousand dollars a piece. Um, you start to create a lot of barriers to actually executing the software. So it's so the, the smart glass became a barrier, kind of a, a obstruction to actually executing those three C's. If you think about it, that right? I can't capture information. My Smart glass is dead. It won't connect. I can't. I don't have eventual consistency. There's all these challenges with actually getting the value and solving the problems that we set out to solve. And so uh, I still believe that there's a world in which we'll have a pair of smart glasses that costs $100, that are resilient, that can get thrown around all day, that are autonomous, that can be run on their own. Uh, but I think for us, we 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 looked at that and said this is really a barrier to growth, and a lot of the folks in this industry had just gotten smartphones a couple of years ago. Some of them didn't even have those. So we had these supercomputers and these text pocket with the opportunity to create real value across that landscape. It was an intentional decision to go, we have to have this on phone applications. This is limiting our ability. We're going to get the very top edge companies that want to be bleeding edge, innovation, you know, innovative and buy this kind of stuff. There's no way we can scale the company unless we make this. Uh, much more available to, to every business in the market. So, 
It was, a, I would say, it wasn't an investor-led uh, decision, and I think investors kind of, it made a lot of sense once they saw what happened when we kind of built the, the phone application initially and started selling it. Obviously, sales followed, and, and people were much more engaged with the product. So we were able to focus, instead of being a smart glass company, on innovating within that gap I described and saying, where are there opportunities in here? And really, in terms of innovation pointed more towards machine learning and artificial intelligence. So in the last few years, we've invested heavily into data science team, kind of looking at all that data that's being captured in that gap and saying, wow, we can use optical character recognition to pull make model serial number off a nameplate. That asset registration is a big problem in this industry. Hey, guys hate taking notes and bad notes are bad customer experience and it's bad for the office. Let's use natural language processing to extract that from videos. So we started seeing the opportunities there and going, Wow, we could actually take millions of pieces of content and start to get really uh, proactive and reactive with an intelligent assistant. And so our, our lighthouse hasn't changed, but I think in terms of how we deliver the democratization of knowledge changed. Mm -hmm. And thus we went to, okay, build a data acquisition platform, give blue collar people a reason to take content that doesn't exist. I can't look, I can guarantee you, I can't find on YouTube a video on how to fix the chiller that runs this building. It doesn't exist. You know where it exists? In Reggie's head at Lee Company, you know? And Reggie's 67 years old, and hopefully he's trained some people on how to do that. So um, we just, it was a different uh, collection model and a different delivery model ultimately, but it just made a lot of sense for our business to, to ultimately execute the software. Let's talk now about the fundraising. Yeah. Um, so you, quit your job, you decide you're going to start this company. At what point did you start thinking about fundraising? Was it self-funded to begin with? Mm -hmm. And and then when did you start bringing in outside investors? Yeah, so uh, friends and family, uh, certainly in the, in the beginning. And also, um, <laughs> as an interesting aside, uh, decided with, the, with the, the remaining savings that I had to, to actually buy a toy and DVD business in Nashville. Uh, I don't tell this story very often, but it's an interesting one. It's such a different a different take than probably most people do. And I go, hey, I'm not going to have a salary for a while. And like you, I thought, you know, two years ended up being four. <laughs> and I said, either I can try to, you know, my wife, my wife is a, is a nurse, now a nurse practitioner of Vanderbilt. So she was making money, but but ultimately, you know, needed to support the family, make sure I was doing something. And so I actually took some money and bought a route of kids, toys, and DVDs at convenience stores, 23 stores providing kids toys and DVDs. I want to be clear for the audience that these were not, these were healthy uh, family-oriented DVDs. Um, and, uh, and so we expanded that business to 180 stores around wow. Nashville. And I hired a guy to run it. I did the accounting and inventory on the weekends. And uh, that helped support the family along the way. So, yeah, running a software business and also supplying the world's best kids' toys under $5.99 and DVDs across convenience stores in Nashville. Um, so, so if anyone goes into a convenience store in Nashville and sees a, a three-sided uh, white tower of toys, that's probably something uh, that we put in, in there. So I sold that business a year and a half, two years ago. But, you know, that was how part of the support in the beginning. Um, yeah, so, so outside of that, friends and family. And then, you know, 
our first round, uh, kind of a seed round, which we call the Series A, which is probably not, it's just, I don't know why, uh, because now we're, we've gone through Series C, agent stage-wise, we're probably a Series B company, but uh, Series A was our first round. Um, we did, uh, we were pre-revenue, um, you know, had, had a, a salute. Uh, was involved in that early on. AIM Group was involved in that first round early on. I did the Alabama Roadshow with the Cormans, which is fun. Uh, I remember that being a four-day sprint at like eight locations. It felt like in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, we're able to, to share with people this problem and ultimately uh, my vision for solving it. And even though it was smart glasses at the time, the, the vision and mission of the business hasn't changed. We just learned a lot in the process. And so that was that was a, the incremental round in November. I think we closed November 2014. And then we kind of kept that round open and added in uh, a firm out of Michigan called Inkwell. It actually was started by a former CEO of Chrysler, uh, Tom Lasorda. Not that Tom Lasorda. People say that immediately. Go, oh, and uh, that he actually he actually oversaw the Daimler uh, purchase of Chrysler, which is interesting. Really smart guy. Interesting stories, but. He had a firm, kind of a micro VC firm in Michigan uh, called Inkwell, and they got involved as well. So we ended up that round with $1.9 million. Uh, and that allowed us really to um, get a commercial product to market. So if you think about the end of that round, was, you know, that second piece was April 15. We released our first production product, software product, in December 15, and then rolled out our first customer in January. Now, was that with the, the hardware, the smart glasses mm-hmm. that you used for that first round? Not, not the smart glasses from the initial R&D company. Um, we actually partnered with a company called Vuzix. So they had, uh, they're in Rochester, New York, uh, still doing well today. They're really doing a lot with the military, and, and they're doing some really cool things for folks that have a hard time seeing. And there's, there's some really great applications still for, for smart glasses. Um, and and uh, no, those were the initial sets, and we probably sold, you know, uh, with them about 1,500 pairs of smart glasses into the space, which I think back on and it's uh, crazy. <laughs> so, so even before the pivot, you were getting good traction with the smart glasses. Not ours, like, but yeah, a partner, a partner smart glass company. Yeah. And we had applications on it. So yeah, mm-hmm, we did. So the 1.9 came, raised, came pre-revenue, this was pre-revenue, mm-hmm. the full 1.9 million. Right. Um, what, what did you feel was the story you were able to tell to these investors to get them to buy in? Revenue, I was I was selling fresh Wyoming air, Phil. <laughs> to call it, it was uh, no, you know, it was uh, it certainly was the vision of the skilled trades gap and the problem that existed within. I think that the initial traction we did have at that point was a lot of pilots. You know, we did forty two different pilots in those early days across a whole slew of different industries. Um, I think there was some attraction to the fact that we were able to to get those pilots started with insurance providers, some large ones, uh, hospital networks. Uh, mechanical electrical plumbing companies, manufacturers. We we had a really nice breadth of pilots, and I think you know we at that point we were still trying to figure out where our focus was going to be. Um, so there was some traction there, but I think ultimately it was interesting in Nashville and, and Alabama for for a company to be focused in something that was non healthcare. I think that was interesting to folks. I think the problem resonated. Because these are blue collar states and, and, and places where people are connected to blue collar people. So I think the logic to the investors of going, yeah, you know, I've got friends, family or other folks I know that are that are, you know, mechanics or are in these spaces. And man, they are they are getting old and they are talking about this problem. And it resonated with people. There's a connection point. It also was different enough where they're used to seeing 
1,001 healthcare deals here that they said, this is interesting. It's a problem that resonates with me and uh, it's something that I'm willing to support. So to be, to be clear where you were, you were pre-revenue, but you were by no means idea stage. You had right. a product, you had pilots. Yeah. Um, how did you get to that point? Was that self-funded piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was. Was it a, you don't have to say the amount if you don't like, if you don't want to, but was it a, was it a major investment or were you able to just kind of bootstrap on like less than a hundred grand? I would say all in between friends and family that participated, we were probably in that year prior to that uh, fundraise, we probably were in five, six hundred grand. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We had, uh, you know, dump life savings type stuff into, you mm-hmm. know, and, and friends and family involved. So uh, in addition to key, key members of the team not taking salaries, you can get a lot done. Uh, we were doing a lot of outsource development then. So um, we, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, we completely rebuilt our product effectively from the ground up two years ago, because the way I put it, we had built a 6,000 square foot house with six general contractors. And when we wanted to add a, you know, fireplace, we had to figure out which general contractor to talk to. And then they went, oh yeah, I don't think we built this house for fireplaces. It's like constant technical debt. And uh, that's a result of having guys from Russia and Honduras and every other offshore <laughs> location building the product because we just we were trying to get it done, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm not a technical founder. I didn't have a technical co-founder. Um, I think that's been probably one of the biggest challenges in the business overall. But ultimately, uh, have have landed and found an incredible CTO that we work really well together, and he's a super smart guy. So. That would certainly be another thing I would do differently, you know, as you think about it. Um, certainly know the industry really well, understand the users really well, could guide the product. But not having that technical co-founder creates a lot of challenges because at the end of the day, that's what you're selling. And uh, trying to trying to appropriately scope technology for other people to build that only care about that invoice and that next deal, it's a different and challenge. So, and as a startup, as you're getting out, like you get out, outside the scope a lot because mm-hmm. you talk to customers, they say, well, could you take it this direction? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, now we've got to rebuild you for this. So that's why it always We, we built what you wanted, yeah. right? And it's like, this is what you said, right? It's like, no, that's not what I meant. You know, I think it's interesting too from a manufacturing background. You, you get resources, you bring people in, materials, people, timelines, tooling, machinery. And you execute a certain number of parts or output over a certain period. So I think one of the biggest challenges for me, because that's my background, is you had a deadline to do 10,000 parts by Friday. It was done. You did what it took, right? Software is so much more gray. A lot of times you're solving unsolved problems. There's a lot of kind of gray area. And you have to get to a point where you understand software development to go, certainly you can put in processes, right? Scrum, Kanban, Marvel, whatever your thing is. But at the end of the day, you are solving unsolved problems a lot of times, and it's not a perfect science. So in my mind, it's like, well, you have construction projects, they get done. You manufacture, it gets done. Uh, it's not that simple. So it was a big transition for me. So this is a good story, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, I get asked all the time, should I outsource tech or do I need to find a, a co-founder, a tech co-founder? Typically, what I tell entrepreneurs is if you are a tech-enabled software, like you can deliver your service and technology just helps you deliver it. And it's probably in most, I don't want to say always, but in most cases, it's okay to outsource. But if you are a technology company, you you might be building IP around your technology or you are driven by the technology, uh, then it's probably the the case you need 
internal tech team. You, I think, quite clearly fall into the latter. Mm-hmm. But you, like you said before, you just need to get something out there. That's right. So what, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs? I mean, do they spend all their time going out trying to find that CTO? Or do they do what you did and just like get done what they can get done and figure out how to fix it later? Because it's better to have a product that maybe needs to be rebuilt yeah. in the market than have nothing in the market. So there's always truth to skin in the game. You know, and I think that ultimately you got a CTO technical co-founder that's that's as involved as you are and has the same writing on the line as you do. There's going to be a level of effort and output that, that's going to trump anything else. I think I think there's another next best thing, which is uh, a highly skilled product person, because then they can scope in a way that a proper product should be scoped and provide that to an outsourced vendor that is super clear, very articulate and uh, explains exactly what you need with the technical nuance included. I would say that's the next best thing. Um, to your point, technical services, et cetera, you have to make those considerations. Um, outsourcing is, is really all about expectation, and that's where scope is. When we've been able to have good product people on our team scoping appropriately and articulately, things have gone well. When we've been, and when it's been me saying, so I need this button to do this thing, it has not gone a while. And, you know, so I think uh, those are some options I would consider. Uh, if you can't find that highly technical co-founder, look for that opportunity to bring someone in the business at a founder level or a high, high enough level where they have enough skin in the game that they can go, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust out a 12-page, very, very detail-oriented scope on what this thing needs to be so that you know what you're getting for what money because you don't get that constant scope creep, which happens. Yeah. And I've worked with a couple of developers and eventually found one who really understood startups. And I, eventually I learned my lessons and I said to him, my customers are going to come back and tell me they want different things. As I show them this, they may say, that looks good, but you know, have you ever thought about doing this? Mm-hmm. When I found that developer who understood, we didn't really have a scope. We just said, um, you know, here's the project budget. And we'll try and do like agile development and all those sorts of things so that we can pivot easily if your customer comes back. So that mm-hmm. might be another path to take. It's just make sure you find a developer who understands yeah. that your idea is probably going to change. Your yeah, that's a good point. I also think, you know, when I, when I say scope, I, I consider heavy doses of customer feedback, you know, and, I, and so that, that is part of it. This isn't just requirements writing. This is engaging with the customer and either that's by nature of connecting with them directly, which is ideal or learning from your you know, co-founder who says, Hey, I understand this industry. Here's been my experience. Um, but yeah, couldn't agree more. So you raised 1.9 million in your, what you call the series A, but we could, you know, the, the terms are semantics. Really. Sure. We can call it whatever we want. Um, so you raise this 1.9 million. You get the hardware product. You get out there rolling. What what happens next um, in the life of the business? And when do you start thinking about the next fundraising round? Or were you already thinking about it, planning ahead? Yeah, I would say this about the semantic piece. I've heard that before, and people say that. I would argue that in my experience, when you tell someone you're a Series A or Series B company, investors will put you in buckets, right? And it may it may hurt your opportunity to have certain conversations. Or it may be a letdown for them when they go, oh, I'm a Series C. And they go, great, you probably have what, $12 to $15 million in recurring revenue. Well, it's actually my third round. It's probably more of a Series B. Age and stage, I think, psychologically can matter. So from an entrepreneur's perspective, everyone's different. I get it. Legally, it doesn't matter. Call it a Series F2, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, right? Um, but yeah, I think there are some there are some perceptions, at least. Um, in terms of, of next steps... Uh, beyond that round, kind of what happened? Is that the next? Sorry, that was yeah, like I got on my soapbox. 
<laughs> well, you're, you're right. I, I actually, and it also, I'll add to that real quickly. It depends where you are. Mm-hmm. If you say I'm a, raising a seed round in Silicon Valley, yeah. that has a much different meaning and context than if you say I'm raising a seed round in Nashville, Tennessee. You're right. So you also have to be aware of what the perception is going to be in different geographies. Mm-hmm. So um, I definitely agree with what you said. So yeah, you raised 1.9 million. I, I guess what did you do? What was the use of the money? What were you were you planning head to the next round already? Or were you just like, okay, I got 1.9 million, let's go execute. And, uh, you know, how did that lead into the next round? Yeah, I think um, it was, let's go execute. And we know that we've got a market we're going to focus on. I think what that money allowed us to do is execute those pilots, understand the mechanical electrical plumbing had the largest skilled trades problem. You know, and that the people the people that work on these problems are on rooftops and, and basements and mechanical rooms and so that's where we wanted to focus so i think that money allowed us to do that and then as as we continue to get the product out we started to go okay lee company locally here was our first customer and uh, they had a peer group we just executed there wasn't a investment period and a specific goal to be honest i think that's happened in the last couple of rounds as we've gotten a little more focused on okay we're taking on this kind of money this is the expectation with that money i think we matured there a bit so really it was about execution and ensuring that we could get enough traction that we would be cash flow positive. That was always really important to me. I think, I think there's a sense of just getting to the next round. And we've been fortunate enough to, to be ramen positive, as they say, uh, at each round, which is nice because it puts you in a better position to have options and, and not be um, kind of have a, the venture capital world go, oh, they've got six months left. I do like this business, but we'll put some more stress on the business and come in three months from now when they really need us, you know? Uh, and so those are the only two things that I was focused on, get the customers in and ensure that we could have a lean enough business that it could support itself. And then when we saw that opportunity to grow, there was a clear path there. Let's look at that next round. And that's when uh, November 2017, we raised the, the $4.5 million dollars. Uh, at that point, got vocap uh, and NCN came in that round. So let's t- let's talk about the, that round and leading up to that round. Yeah. When did you start those conversations? Was it and, and what was the impetus? You know, you were ramen, like ramen, right? You know, ramen mm-hmm. profitable. You didn't need the money. Were you thinking like, okay, we're ready? Like we've got this product market fit. We're ready to just blow this thing out of the water. We need to raise some money to help scale faster. Mm-hmm. Was there an option to not take money and still grow and just grow more slowly? Yeah, we actually at that point had customers that were willing to invest in the business. Um, and that was an attractive option. At the same time, my concern was always about dictating the company's uh, direction and also maybe limiting opportunities with competition. Uh, what you'll you'll find and what we learned about the mechanical electrical plumbing industry is that they're very geographically based and think that's logical. So what these companies do is they have large peer networks. Uh, and so uh, they're able to get in lead companies in a, in a group that's got, I think, eight companies across the country. Um, there's been since then multiple peer groups we've been a part of. And so we said, you know, we hate to get involved with the company. They invest. They've got, I've got an opportunity in California. They've got a peer member in California that's been looking at us. We're getting stress and, stress and pressure maybe about working with that competitor. There, it's a very small industry and as big as it is. Everyone knows each other. You know, it's a $3.6 billion TAM for us in North America. Plenty big enough island for us to go conquer. 
the same time, it's, it's, it can be incestuous. It can be a co-opetition, right, in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of nuances in this industry that I think uh, for us that wasn't an option. So, so when we looked at that next round, we, we saw a path by which we didn't have the resources to execute on the opportunities that were in front of us. And speaking of peer groups, one of those was a, a peer group, a 45-company peer group out of Chicago that we started getting some major traction with. And we were able to construct a group deal within that peer group to get, I think today we have maybe 30 of those companies as customers. And we started seeing that happening. We're looking at our resources going, man, we, at that point we had seven people. I think we had seven people in the business. And so uh, that was the impetus for that, for that next round is to take advantage of that next slug of customers and be able to have the appropriate resources, product, uh, CS and sales to keep going. So at that point, you start the conversations with what I would, I guess, call institutional investors, yeah. you know, VCs, angel networks, that sort of thing. Um, even though that's where your first round, and I should um, tell our audience, uh, you know, a little bit about Salu. Your your initial backer, Salu, no longer exists, right? And um, Aim Group, which is I think the largest angel network in the southeast, and you know, I know the Corman's a fan fan of them as well. Um, they um, they now only look at post revenue companies, usually five hundred to thousand to a million. So those those resources aren't technically uh, those institutional investors aren't really available to the entrepreneurs right. in the in the south at least anymore. Um, but now that you're talking to these institutional investors, what what changed? Were they more interested in like data? Was you know you mentioned your TAM like were they like well you know what's the What's the total addressable market? What's your cost to acquire a customer? What's your lifetime no question. value? Is that the point that that started happening? Yeah. Were you prepared for that? No. <laughs> no. Uh, I think we, we learned by fire about really being more prepared and being more data-driven around unit economics in the business, cost of customer acquisition, lifetime value, understanding ARPU, you know, all those different details that, that really reflects a healthy SaaS business. So I think... Uh, that was certainly part of it. The total addressable market was part of it. Uh, that due diligence process um, happened in the middle of my wife being on bed rest and having my first kid shortly thereafter, a little early. So I'll never forget that three-month stretch of learning uh, through the due diligence process with vocab and having a newborn <laughs> and, uh, and what that was. It was I would not recommend having a baby and going through uh, your first kind of institutional due diligence process, but... It made us better as a business and, and certainly gave us a more clear path around what this investment period was. So, you know, we, we really were very intentional about if we take this money over this period of time, we want to reach these revenue goals. And based on our unit economics, we're going to work backwards from that goal to understand the sales staff, the marketing staff, uh, the customer success staff that's needed to execute that. So, so we're much more intentional about it. And also the other lesson I learned along that path is I had not prepared well enough uh, maintaining relationships like I did between that round and this last round that we closed in the spring, in which I was much more intentional on taking those meetings on a consistent basis. Um, we, we, <laughs> we sent out, uh, we were still, we were still in, in 17 having an aspect of our system that, that had a smart glass component. And so I actually sent out 40 styrofoam heads and boxes with uh, dead smart glasses attached to them because I certainly wasn't going to send the $1,500 real versions because that would have been way too much money. But we actually got with our, with our partner and sent those out. And I got the attention of OCAP, uh, which was nice. 
But uh, I thought to myself, if you're if you're a VC that gets ahead in your office, um, you may not invest in us, but you'll remember us, right? And uh, and so, but that that happened to work. But I don't think there's many more tricks up my sleeve. I had to maintain good relationships the next time around, which was big. So consistently meeting with folks, keeping them updated. This idea that VCs don't invest in lines, not dots, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, relationship building there and, and progress was important. But anyway, um, yeah, very, very much a, a shift in our business. Also, what happened in that time period is we kind of understood, even though we still had some, some small smart glass component, we started to really understand the value of machine learning uh, around this this content, the fact that the, the data was the play for the company, uh, that ultimately we had built a data acquisition platform. We had proven that some machine learning techniques were really powerful and now it was time to, to continue to scale those efforts. And so that's really where we invested uh, more heavily into a CTO and he brought with him a lot of data scientists and fortunate enough to have um, one particular business in the area that's, that's heavily uh, staffed around uh, artificial intelligence and been doing it for quite some time. And so we were able to take advantage of that and bring in a, a team that, that really took our technology to another level. And so I think that that ultimately what those investors bought into was different than what the initial investors bought into. And the fact that our lighthouse was still the same, but the way we were solving that problem was very clearly around this idea of something we internally called journeyman, which is this, and I hate when people do this, but I think for the audience, it'll clearly make sense quickly. Think about it as a conversational interface or an Alexa for field service. If, we, if we're able to build a data set that doesn't exist and we can surface that data set in an intelligent, kind of proactive, reactive way, that could be the empirical source of truth for this industry. And because we were collecting data people didn't have, how great would it be for a technician to take a picture of a data plate and for us to automatically surface manual wiring diagrams, the top three training videos for that unit, and a link to a live call button to somebody that could help them if we're recording all those interactions, we can build something pretty powerful. So that was the first time that vision had kind of formalized. And those investors, NCN and Vocap, were and continue to be around that vision. And that's where we're heading. Um, so let's let's go back for a little bit. When do you think it's the right time for entrepreneurs to start conversations with VCs? Would you recommend they did that like even as you were launching, just to at least introduce VCs to what you were doing, or do you think like you get your round in, you get some traction, and then you start conversations? Is there a time that's too early to start a conversation with VC? I would say at the idea inception, the ability to, you make the decision you're moving forward, I would start those conversations. What you're doing is building not only a relationship, which matters, but also um, some sort of confidence around credibility around creativeness, around drive, saying, hey, look, I have this idea. My background lends itself to this. Here's the problem I'm solving. I think earlier the better, mm-hmm. right? And, and discipline around having those conversations reaps major rewards. And I think as I fast forward to our latest round, we were fortunate enough uh, to have with that shift in mentality, which is tough because you got your head down, you're building a business, but you know, we were able to have four term sheets in 30 days. We closed an $11 million round in 90 days. And that's only because of two years of having conversations and not, you don't always want to, you're building a business. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I gotta, I gotta talk to another associate 
some kid that graduated Harvard that thinks he's really smart. Like, it's tough, right? You're sitting there killing yourself, and this guy's like, well, tell me about your TAM, and what about your unit economics? And, well, that doesn't seem like it's very strong. It's like, dude, you're 23 years old, man. But you have to swallow your ego, have those conversations, get to the next step, right? Talk to the VP, get past those gates. Uh, That's hard, and it takes discipline. And when you're killing yourself... Those are, uh, those are tough conversations to have, but I think it allows you as a business to, to when you need cash and you see that next milestone in place, you can have those conversations and they've been along with you on the ride. So we'll come back to that bigger race here in a moment. Um, I want to go back to the race with NCN and Vocap. Yeah. Vocap's out of Atlanta, correct? They are. And NCN is here, National Capital Network is yeah. here in Nashville. Uh, did you talk to, and they both invest, obviously NCN will invest in companies in Nashville, Vocap is investing in a couple of companies I know mm-hmm. in Nashville. So for them, you being based in Nashville wasn't a big deal. Did you talk to other VCs, maybe on like the East Coast or the West Coast, that, um, that one, you were trying to get money from, and two, did they mention the geography or anything about that? Were you even talking to the VCs at that point? Yeah, I think we uh, we had several conversations at that time. Um, like I said, it was more of a shotgun approach. And so I think for us, once we had aligned with somebody that we knew was going to be a good partner and, and stand behind us, we were full march ahead on getting that deal done. Um, yeah, certainly geography comes up in conversations. I think, I think over the last several years, people have been, you know, VC firms, for one, there's 2,679, you know, I don't know the number they, of new ones every year or something. Um, I saw something on Twitter recently, guys like, man, I think there's more VC firms than companies at this <laughs> point. Right? Um, but uh, I think I think people are starting to be more intentional about, hey, we're going to invest in the Midwest. We're going to invest in the South. Um, for us, I think we were we were really focused on, hey, we've got a handful of opportunities, a couple of people that are really interested in a couple of term sheets at that time. Uh, we just pick the one that makes sense and let's keep driving forward. I did like the local geography. I think that made sense at that time for the business. There was more interaction and, and NCN and Bocap have been phenomenal partners. It was the right call to have them close when you're able to you know, pop up from Atlanta or have a conversation in Nashville when you need that type of assistance and approach. That's been really powerful. Plus, there were smaller firms that um, were really active with their portfolio companies. I think everyone says that. Um, they've proven that that's true, uh, and I, I'm sure there's plenty that don't do that after you know post investment. But that was kind of our our mindset at that particular round. So let's talk about the next round. Uh, you said you started having conversations two years as soon as the other round was closed. Within a month, we were I was actively scheduling meetings, and uh, I, I focused on having at least two VC conversations a week, thirty minutes, right? but just made sure that it was at least two and that we were constantly kind of getting the feedback. Cause the other thing too, if you have the right kind of conversation, you're getting nuggets of, of truth that can help you through business. So it shouldn't just be a, a sales process, but I, I set it up like, like it was. And I also look for what I could learn from that, that particular group at that time. And so it was clear to me that there were certain revenue thresholds, certain types of venture capital firms that could be helpful, started thinking more clearly about the business and what we needed uh, at that next raise and, and tried to index more heavily on those firms that I thought would be helpful. So it really was November 17 to closing in July of 19. So I guess not quite two years, but a year and a half of that. So what was the outcome? How many VCs did you talk to? Who ended up uh, making the investment? How much did you raise? Yeah. And, and um, you know, where, 
you know, were you so profitable or were you getting mm-hmm. into that burn thing and you had to kind of... Yeah, yeah. So we were fortunate enough to, to, to again hit cash flow positive uh, in the quarter that we were raising. So it was uh, really kind of an intentional approach by us to, again, have optionality. Uh, I think every time a company raises its head from uh, that next kind of sprint, um, optionality is the most powerful thing an entrepreneur can have. Where where are my options? Can I keep running the business? Is it self-sufficient? Are there opportunities for uh, investors to come in? Have I hit the revenue targets most people talk about? You know, I think in this in this round, an agent stage in the business, that $5 million in ARR is kind of a litmus test for most guys. They're not going to be even looking at a company that's, that's any less. Um, so you start to learn those things, you know, start to index on those guys that are investing in that range that can be helpful for you based on their expertise. What kind of network do they have? And so for us, I think that probably when we started the process, uh, it was April 1st, right? Uh, we really kicked that off the first week of April this year. And I'd say there was probably 10 people we had, they had really kind of, kind of narrowed down to 10, 10 firms. Um, by May 1st, we had four term sheets. A couple had fallen out and said no. A couple of we had said no to because it just didn't, wasn't a good fit as we got deeper in the discussion. And we ended up with those, those term sheets. And then we made a decision within two weeks to move forward with Peakspan. Uh, they're based in New York and Silicon Valley. Um, relatively new firm, probably only, I think Peakspan is six or seven years old. They're on their second fund. They probably have, I don't know, 500 million in AUM or so. So, um, you know, really attracted us to, to Peakspan was certainly personalities first. I think you, you're you're married to these folks, right? And we had had such a good experience with OCAP and NCN. I index much have much more heavily on the personal piece uh, and understanding uh, and asking a lot of detailed questions about how you've helped your portfolio companies, how you stand on certain items. Uh, with these guys, I think it's important too. Was important too to understand how they think about about exits getting to a point in which, you know, as you're growing the business, what's your expectation? I think a lot of companies put themselves in the thin air. They don't do the math uh, and go, okay, this guy's giving me 11 million bucks. His expectation is a seven or eight X return. I look at his percentage in the business. I got to sell a $500 million company. How many companies sell for 500 million or a billion dollars? Right. And then you do the, you do the research and you go, well, how many companies sell at 150 or 200? If we were to have an opportunity to sell the business at $200 million, is that a good outcome? And if this venture capital firm uh, doesn't think so, you're going to be on this ride and you're putting yourself in some thin air. It doesn't mean... The interesting thing is I had VC say, well, you don't believe in the business? You don't think it's going to be a $2 billion unicorn? Nothing pisses me off more than for a VC to say that to an entrepreneur. Yeah, I put my entire life in this company, all my life savings, worked 100-hour weeks, because I don't believe in it. I actually want to look at logical data and say, hey, let's make sure that, again, optionality, that an outcome at this next stage makes sense for everybody. And so uh, that was a really important piece for us. And I think um, Peakspan brought a, a logic to, they named their, their firm after it, peak to peak, right? At every peak, there's a logical opportunity. It's not saying we're, oh, we're selling next time for sure. But hey, this makes sense. We told our LPs this story. Um, There's another firm in the running that's a huge, well-known VC firm. Very excited. Uh, you know, just we're a nameless at this point. But but they wanted to put way more money into the company, and they said, "You got to pull this thing up. We want to give you 25 million bucks. We're going to take this thing to a billion-dollar business." 
And that's the model for these West Coast firms, right? It's like, I've got five companies. I'm going to put as much money as I'll possibly take. And I know three are going to fail. One's going to be a decent outcome. And one's going to be Uber. Mm -hmm. And that's my model, you know? And I think that we had to sift through that some. And I got good advice from my current board investors as well as advisors around doing the research. Where do companies get bought? Where's your optionality? What's, what does that look like? And that's good to know that there is optionality out there, that there are VC funds that can get their target return for a 200 to $500 million exit and you don't have to sell for a billion dollars. So it's great to hear that you just need to find alignment. And with the, like you said, there's 2,700, you know, however many right. VCs out there. There's a VC out there that is aligned with the vision that you have for your company. And mm -hmm. I tell entrepreneurs to start with the end in mind. What is it you want right. for your company? Not what do you think investors want to hear that you want. That's right. What do you want? And then go find investors that are in alignment with that. So that's a, that's a great story. So how, how much did you raise and uh, what's next? What Are you already thinking about your next round or is this like the round that gets you to exit? Yeah, I always think it's, it's probably... Um, a little bit amateur hour to ever be like, this round's getting us to exit because you never know, right? Um, I, I also used to, I also used to answer, you know, what's your exit plan? And I would say, oh, um, you know, build a great business. That's why I, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. And we're important, that's important to us, but I also think it's a bit naive to take on venture capital and not realize that they invested to have an exit. And so you have to be intentional and think about that. I think that was just an opportunity for me to mature as an entrepreneur. Um, in terms of, you know, Peakspan, Grotech, we're part of this round, Bocap and NCM we're in as well. Um, uh, one important lesson from this before I answer what's next, you know, Grotech's out of North Carolina. They had invested heavily in the field service space. It was important for me. Peakspan didn't have direct industry experience. I think they had operational experience and, and were able to offer a lot around strategic and various other things. Grotech, Don Rainey, um, invested in a company called Pazer and uh, knew this industry really well. In fact, our go-to-market strategy, uh, Pazer had executed at another level. They're kind of at a different stage in their business. And so, excuse me, for us, that was a, a key point. And I would tell an entrepreneur that carving out room for those guys, because Grotech's not necessarily going to lead a you know $11 million round. Their, their check size is two to three, maybe four million bucks. So um, looking for those opportunities to bring in some strategic, and that's been really huge for us in the last five months, being able to connect to those business leaders that have seen this movie before. So that's something else I would, I would definitely advise for. In terms of next steps, I think it is, you know, given our revenue goals over the next two years, um, we have an opportunity to have options that include an exit, right? It's not it's not the only goal. It's again just adding another option to the table. When you're when you're two three million dollars in run rate, your next round likely, unless you're going you know Silicon Valley level raise, is not going to lead to that as an option. You're probably going to have you know I need to get from two to five to six. I need to get to six to fifteen or whatever. Uh, and so for me, I think the next piece is from an invest purely investment perspective is to say. When I raise my head up in two years, do we have an option for private equity or strategic buyer that is going to look at this business and say, this is a large enough revenue stream that if I put it in my engine, it's going to be a business um, division that, that I know is going to output. I've got another fundraise potentially if I want to continue to grow this thing and we see a path to take it to the next level. And also we're planning financially to be cash flow positive again. So at every, at every round, we've been very intentional about having as many options as possible. Debt's an, another option too. We're getting ready to have some 
I think pretty astronaut. We are going to have some pretty astronomical growth at the beginning of next year, and uh, probably leaning in even more heavily than we thought when we raised around five months ago. And so, um, I do think those debt options, as you get larger, are attractive. When you see those paths for those big opportunities, and you say, "Well, do I, I don't need to take more dilution. I could bring in a little bit of debt here, help us get to that next stage." Um, those are other things that we're considering as well. So, so this investment period is two and a half years. Um, kind of have earmarked, you know, December twenty twenty one is is that inflection point where that optionality should exist, and then we'll lift our heads up and decide what's next. That's great. So we've had some great nuggets of wisdom and some advice pieces of advice throughout this uh, podcast here, but. In closing, are there any things that you would say to the entrepreneurs out there who are in the early stages of raising money? Just some advice that you could pass along to them about raising money outside the coast. Get styrofoam heads and put them in boxes. <laughs> no. um, you know, yeah, for, for, for folks in, in the South, the options even from what they were six years ago, certainly even three years ago, are much, much more. And so that's great news. Uh, it's a frothy market, as one of my board members would say. And if he hears this, he's going to smile because he knows who he is. But it's true, right? There's a lot of money. The economy's been great for a while. It looks like the macro economy is going to do well still for another year or so. I'm sure we'll see a dip or do. But uh, it's a good time to raise money. So I, I'd say that the, the, the advice would be have a lot of conversations and, and get as many run it like you would a sales process. You have a top of funnel, you have identified key folks, you're having those conversations, you're digging in, and you're showing that you can do what you say you're going to do. I think that is the, the biggest advice I would give is all entrepreneurs are always showing a huge hockey stick and we're going to do all these things. Cut that in half. Tell the investor, this is actually, I think I can do 100. I'm going to tell them 50 or 30, and I know I'm going to get to 30. Because that is much more attractive to an investor, even though you may think, oh, that's not enough. I heard that so-and-so and so-and-so. You get all this kind of you know, stories that you hear about what you should be doing. I guarantee that venture capitalists, if they're good, are going to be paying attention to your ability to deliver upon what you said you're going to do more than comparing you to another CEO that said, I'm going to go from $2 million in run rate to 27 next year. And everyone's rolling their eyes internally when they hear that. It's like, okay. One out of a million companies do that. So I, I think the biggest advice would be, and it's something I've failed at and have learned from, is over-promising and under-delivering. And if you can have as many conversations as possible, make sure that you create landmarks that are, are achievable with some buffer for failure and for missteps, um, you will build trust. And again, investing in lines, not dots, you will have enough people that see you do what you say you're going to do to want to give you money to keep going. Yeah, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the Lines Not Dots. Uh, it's a very well-known blog post by Mark Suster. Mm -hmm. And uh, that way everyone can kind of read that. It's a great blog post um, about how to approach investors. Uh, well, we, we really appreciate your coming in. Aaron Salo, XOI, uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having this me, Phil. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to the latest episode of Startups in the Studio. If you'd like to dig in deeper into this episode or other episodes, you can visit our website, startupsinthestudio.com, to find show notes and links we found to be relevant based on these interviews. Of course, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give us a high rating and positive review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please feel free to share Startups in the Studio with anyone you think would enjoy our conversations. 
As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what we can do better, give us some topic or interview ideas, or just send us a note and say hello. You can reach me at phil, E-H-I-L, at startupsinthestudio.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, and go out there and raise some money.